0: Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new
1: and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast.
2: Welcome to True Fiction, the podcast that talks to interesting, creative people to find out where their creativity comes from. I'm your host Patrick Boggs. Across the table from me is our co-host Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight Norbert?
1: It's going great looking forward to it.
2: Yeah absolutely. Before I introduce our guest though I wanted to say thanks to all those who've subscribed to our show. I also wanted to remind those who haven't subscribed yet to do so. It's the best way to ensure that you won't miss our podcast and it's easy too. Just go to your favorite podcast app, Search for True Fiction and click subscribe. All that's left to do is to sit back and have the podcast roll in. Tonight we have a great guest. Tonight we're going to be talking to a writer and actor who penned episodes of Murder, She Wrote, Simon & Simon, the new WKRP in Cincinnati, and Sliders, to name a few. His voice work includes Frosty Returns, You're in the Super Bowl, Charlie Brown, and Oz Kids. Additionally, he has written, produced, and narrated a number of pop culture documentaries, and is the author of Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. True Fiction welcomes Steve Stoller. Hi, Steve. How are we doing tonight?
0: I'm doing fine. How about you guys?
2: We're doing pretty good. I'm. You uh, had to think a
0: moment there. There was a hesitation <laughs> as if I were serious to want to know if you had aches and pains or a headache. My it's my sky- pleasure to be among you.
2: My sciatic is acting up again today, but other than that, um, you know.
0: <laughs> Put it in the corner until it behaves itself.
2: Very good. So you've had a pretty creative life so far. And uh, when did this all start? Was it you basically got your job with Groucho when you were what nineteen? Yeah. So was that when uh, your creativity started? Did
0: that help? That's it's a tough. It's tough to peg. I mean, as a really young kid, I found that I had a flair for imitating relatives and people around and getting laughs doing that. And I remember having fun with wordplay. I even remember, I remember the first joke I ever came up with. This will tell you when it was. The, the joke was, what does President Kennedy say to Jackie? You're sugar." Meshuggah <laughs> being a Yiddish word for crazy, but it was also a play on his Boston accent. I was six uh, or seven at the time. So very good. So I had a way of, of doing that. Then when I was 15, I sent in some jokes to laugh in, and I got a letter back from the head writer saying, you obviously have an eye and an ear for humor and should be encouraged to keep at it and which meant a lot to me it was right after my mom died oh. and it was a real adrenaline shot to get some support like that and i was class clown at my high school uh, which was not the biggest goof off it sort of has become you know a smart ass or something but it was because i had gotten a uh, a reputation for a sense of humor and and doing impressions and you know hosting the senior breakfast and different things like that. So it, I don't know. It's, uh, I think creativity was always there in some form. I got, I got a, a blue ribbon in junior high for finishing a story that the teacher, teacher read a story, but not the ending. And then we had to write the ending. And I think mine was chosen. So I, I hadn't really intended a creative career and you've and certainly succeeded. Um, uh, my interest was in uh, archaeology and history. And when I started at UCLA, it was as a history major. I don't really know what I thought I would do with that. That's hardly a shortcut to fabulous riches, you know, <laughs> teaching history or going on an archaeological dig somewhere. But that was what I loved. But I always loved old movies and comedians and, and old Tin Pan Alley songs and that sort of thing. I just didn't really, I wasn't honest with myself about how strongly I was into it and dared to think that, that you could make a living at that. And I had my dad, who grew up during the Depression, was a very nuts and bolts guy, you know. It's like, you don't get a job that you enjoy. You get a job that keeps food on the table and the rent paid. So even when I was crazy about dinosaurs, he was trying to push me into being interested in micropaleontology because those were the people that found oil, and there was money in oil. But I didn't care about microscopic fossils. I like dinosaur bones and <laughs> right. saber tooth cats. And that's it. And then he kept trying to push me that way. And he certainly wouldn't believe that I could make any kind of a living writing or doing voice work. So I didn't take it seriously either. And I would say it was getting the job and working inside Groucho's house and just being immersed in that atmosphere and it just it became irresistible, and I and I switched my major from history to motion picture television. Oh, nice! And uh, that that got me going in a professional way. And after Groucho passed away, I worked at, in the steno pool at Universal Studios from eleven to eight every day, typing on a Selectric to Beretta's Kojaks, Rockford files. Um, such films as Animal House and uh, Melvin and Howard. It was really cool. It was also interesting trying to figure out is this movie going to be good or not? And I I was usually right, except for Melvin and Howard, which I thought was ludicrous because it opened with some old man on a motorcycle in the desert having an accident and then some guy picks him up And they start singing about Santa Claus's souped up sleigh. And I thought, this is stinkaroo. And (laughs) it ended up winning best uh, screenplay at the Oscars that year. Wow. So as usual, my thumb was on the pulse of the entertainment, (laughs) but I knew animal house would be a hit. And there were others that I like. And then, you know, I, but I was on the, uh, I was on the wrong side of the desk because I was typing, getting familiar with scripts, but I wasn't writing them. And then I left the stenopool pool and got to work for a producer named Bill Dial at Universal, who had worked on KRP in Cincinnati. But I was still on the other side of the desk, even though he respected me as more than just someone to get the phone and type stuff and make coffee. But it took Dick Cavett, who became an acquaintance of mine through my Groucho experience, and then after that, a friend, which we renamed. It took him hiring me from behind Bill Dial's desk to fly to New York to begin writing for him at HBO in 1982. Oh, wow. And that's how I went from being a secretary to an official writer, stuff unspooled after that. But nice. I've of course skipped over the main chunk of why we're here, <laughs> which is talking about we're talking about all the stuff that happened before and after, and oh, it's a, we've got the A and the Z of the encyclopedias, but all those letters in between have yet to be browsed. through. And I, I want a short answer to your question. <laughs>
2: yeah, perfect.
0: You one. Yep.
2: I, and I also wanted to bring you back just a second because you got me thinking. Uh oh. Uh yeah, and I I'm sure you could smell something burning. Um, When you talked about Animal House and you knew that was going to be a hit, one of the things, I, I guess at the time, John Belushi wasn't really that big of an act, but you have seen the script and you were reading the script and you said, hey, this looks pretty good. Do you think that because it was a good script, they've got good actors in those roles or do you think that if... Is that how you see it ever? Do you see that usually when there's a
0: good script? A good good actor can't make a bad script good, but a bad actor can screw up a good script. So it had to be, I don't think at the time I knew, no, I didn't know at the time who was going to be in it. I was just told by the writing, but I knew they were from National Lampoon, and I had been a big subscriber in the early 70s. And, you know, I grew up with Mad and then graduated in that And love the irreverent you know buy this magazine or shoot this dog I love that stuff all that dark <laughs> humor and that was you know this I remember chunks of the script that I typed were there was dark stuff in there that didn't make the final oh. uh, there was I think there was supposed to there was a float of JFK and the sorority girls were in the pink pillbox hat outfit that Jackie had on. And in the initial script, uh, something blows off the back of the Kennedy float head, uh, which doesn't happen in the finished version. There's hints of it, but not that. I remember that. But I thought that would be good. And then when it was a big hit and they were going to do the Blues Brothers, I was a huge fan of, of SNL in, its, in the early years but I couldn't figure out how they were going to make a movie out of something where Belushi and Ackroyd come out and, and open their briefcase of blues and dance and sing and do cartwheels and leave. How do you, and I I was on the elevator one uh, at universal. And there was a guy that had a button that said the blues brothers. And I said, how are they going to make a movie out of something? That's like, and he said, it's going to be their story. And that was John Landis. Oh, wow. Time. So he would know, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that, absolutely. That, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why that movie special for me. It has nothing to do with Belushi, Ecuador, Landis and everything to do with the fact that I got to meet cab Calloway. Wow. Cause I used to wander around on my lunch hour. I used to wander around the sound stages and stick my nose where it didn't belong, but where you couldn't keep me away. <laughs> and I found out when he was going to be shooting some scenes and uh, brought a photograph and he signed to Steve, Heidi Ho, Cab Calloway. Oh my gosh. That was, yeah. So I I took full advantage of, even though I was mindlessly typing scripts, I got to meet, you know, I didn't really care that much about the then current hot, you know, Lindsay Wagner and Lee Majors were doing $6 million man and Bionic Limited. That didn't phase me, seeing uh, Robert Blake and Barretta, uh, but guest stars. I would try to look at the call sheet. So I got to meet Lauren Bacall on the set of Rockford Files. Wow. I got to meet Fred Astaire, who was in my pantheon of my handful, on the set of all things of Battlestar Galactica. Really? Because his granddaughter said, Grandpa, will you be on that show? I love that show. So they wrote in a part for him and I went down to the set and he signed a picture I had from Swing Time. Oh my gosh. It was just it was a great experience just wandering around the Universal lot observing. I used to see Hitchcock being driven in every morning in the back of a dark green Lincoln Continental. He was supposed to be working on a film called The Short Night, but everyone sort of knew it was never going to happen, but because he had been such a long and trusted part of MCA. I mean, going back to... Alfred Hitchcock Presents was shot there, and the Psycho House, and the Birds, and Marnie, and all that. He was a treasured member of the MCA family, so he kept his office there and would go in and have lunch. But we all sort of knew it was never... going, And, in fact, it didn't. He never did make it. But I would see... That unmistakable silhouette going <laughs> past the guard station, uh, either to or fro.
2: Now, do you know if anybody ever did that
0: movie? They never did. Oh, I wow. had a copy of it at one point. Holy cow! I may still have it in some box somewhere. I, I think that everybody has this phantom box somewhere that has all the things they haven't been able to find, but no, they didn't throw out. So it must be here, or maybe I sold it on eBay. I don't remember.
2: I've got that box somewhere at home.
1: Yeah, where? I well, don't you know. look in there and see if my script, The <laughs> Short Night, is in there. So, one of the things I was thinking about when you was talking about uh, working with Groucho, and you changed your ma- your major to to film study. Film study. Yeah. Was there? Was it a process that you? Um, went through just being with him and sort of his energy or his intellect or his humor. Was it that, or was there one moment or was it him, you know, was it the life that he had lived? How did that come about it, where you it go? It
0: was the, it was the atmosphere. It wasn't, there wasn't one. I didn't have this as God is my witness. I'll never go hungry again. Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara moment where I'm going to be a part of this lookout world. You're going in there at, A secretary, and you're coming out a star. No, it wasn't like that. But I'll tell you, I was really drawn to his circle of friends Um, the older writers, the older directors, as well as some of the older stars. Erin Fleming was a younger woman who was a Canadian actress that had started out as his secretary and eventually became really in charge of his life. As he got weaker and hazier, he got more dependent on her. So she was really in charge of his life. And she was a very mercurial, ups and downs, crazy person. Actually, literally, it turned out that she was a paranoid schizophrenic, which is a dangerous thing to have in charge of an elderly man whose health is precarious. But... Her, her circle of friends were these younger, quirkier, and I think there were a certain amount of recreational drugs involved as well. I, I wasn't that sure because I led a very clean life and didn't do that sort of thing. But I think that, that some of their behavior was enhanced. Hers was as well. Um, but her friends were like... Uh, Elliot Gould and Sally Kellerman and Bud Court and uh, there were a few. It was sort of like an Altman movie because they were all (laughs) Altman people strangely. Um, And I never quite connected with them the way I did with the people that made Groucho's films or with George Burns or Mae West or Steve Allen, Jack Lemon. It was was really an... extraordinary experience for me. And also because I got the job at the absolute epitome of my obsession with the Marx brothers and with Groucho. So I don't know if you've had the experience of meeting someone significant when you were younger that you can't quite appreciate. And then when you're older, you go, Oh man, I wish I had realized who that was. I would have asked them about this or whatever. In this case, my mind was like a Rolodex of names. So I would meet Nat Perrin and I would think, okay, Nat Perrin, he worked on monkey business and duck soup. Oh, he created the Adams family for TV. He's one of Groucho's oldest friends. He was called the deacon in the Groucho letters. Cause that was his nickname. Oh, all right. There's Irv Brecker. He wrote at the circus and go West and worked on meet me in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, and then, and they were impressed that a, a whippersnapper like me would know who the hell they were at all. You know, they, you know, you don't want to hang out with these old Alta cockers, do you? Yes, I much preferred the company. Uh, I got to spend time with S. J. Perelman. I mean, in addition to working on Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, was just one of the most influential humorists of the 20th century up there with James Thurber and Robert Benchley and those, wow. those guys. Um, he sort of bristled when people would only want to know about the Marx brothers because he had filled like 20 books with short humorous pieces from the New Yorker and other magazines. And it was like, what was it like working with? Was Groucho funny when he was on it? And Oh, is a harpo. He, he, he could talk right again. And it's, You know, so I could understand why he would bristle at that uh, only being known. He won an Oscar for co-writing Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, wow. Um, But he stopped by Groucho's one night on one of his, on his way back from one of his Around the World jaunts that he would then write about. And they were very cordial. uh, I didn't, you know, if I hadn't known that there had been any bristling over the years, it, it went both ways because Perelman resented only being seen as a Marx Brothers gag writer. And then Groucho resented that some essays he had read implied that Perelman needs to be credited with creating Groucho's screen character,
2: oh, wow. which isn't
0: true because he didn't start working on their films till their third film. And by then, after Coconuts and Animal Crackers, it was there, so there was that kind of ego bumping going on. But I remember after dinner, uh, Perelman took out a cigarette and said, uh, Groucho, do you mind if I smoke? And Groucho said, I don't care if you're me. <laughs> Perelman said, that was good, Groucho. Let's try it for timing now. And I thought, ooh, it's like being on the set of monkey business in 1931. But I was just I so felt a kinship with that crowd. And I mean I I cornered Perelman for like fifteen or twenty minutes, which amazed me because I knew that he was sort of a misanthrope that didn't suffer fools or or most people gladly. But we were talking about the Algonquin round table and he asked what what I wanted to do and I said I wanted to be a writer maybe for television and he was saying you should write for the theater because they have more control over the material and television it's the producer and in movies it's the director and uh, I asked him if I would be if it was possible for me to have him sign one of his books and he was staying at the Chateau Marmont and he said he would be happy to just drop it off there and then I'll sign it and leave it there, and uh, he did. And he wrote for Steve Stoyer with very cordial wishes for his ultimate success as a writer. Oh wow! And I thought, well, now I guess I've got to be a writer because people <laughs> wonder, you've been a plumber for thirty-five years. Why did the S.J. Perelman wish you well? So that you know, again, it was it, it was much more of a gradual transformation. But once I got over my nervousness, I never took the job for granted. And it was never like, oh, there's Groucho again. It was always some kind of adventure with the, you know, the dark elements of the fact that his life was winding down. So I'm getting close to my hero as the curtain's coming down and dealing with Aaron Fleming's fits of rage and just sprinting up and down the behavioral spectrum Uh, It was a lot to handle at 19 or 20 because I had grown up in a very sedate middle of the road. You know, we were from St. Louis and we're just sort of, you know, there weren't, there wasn't screaming or the slamming of doors or drinking or, you know, it was a pretty straight and narrow thing and I was dealing with some, you know, big personalities and but I managed to be the longest surviving employee there and and worked there for the last three years of his life, which was uh, much more than I thought it. I mean, I never thought I'd get to meet him. I knew he was old. I knew he was frail and I thought I'm never going to meet him. I would love to, but it's not going to happen in 1972. He was, he played a few cities with his one-man show that they did the Carnegie Hall album on. So in December of 72, my roommate and I went to go see Groucho at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, $9.50 for the ticket, which would not buy you parking now there. All right. And it was not a great seat because I didn't have connections, but it was so electrifying to see him shuffle out and up to the podium because I thought, That's him in three dimensions and in color. That's my... And actually, it was kind of a blow to the solar plexus because I didn't realize how how slow and old he had gotten. The the press had kind of kept up the myth that good old Groucho at 80, just as quick and funny as ever. And he wasn't that way. And that took some getting used to. But it was still thrilling and my hands stung the next morning from having clapped so hard because I wanted, vibra- this may sound really perverse, but I wanted vibrations from my hands to hit his eardrums because I knew it was as close as I would ever get to him. And then after the show in the, in the parking garage, I spotted Z- Zeppo Mark with a young blonde. I recognized him because I, again, had become so immersed in their lore and in uh, books and magazine articles and stuff that I just kind of kept up with anything remotely newsworthy. So I knew what he looked like. And I thought, well, I'm never going to meet Groucho, but damn it, I'm going to meet a Marx brother. Hmm. So I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed you in your movies. And he looked up at me and he said, you weren't enjoying me, you were enjoying my brother. And I thought, gee, I'm so glad I took a moment (laughs) and get insulted by it." it, it. It would have been, I would have flatly rejected it if that night someone had told me that two years later I would be having dinner with Zeppo and Gummo, who was the other brother still alive, and Groucho, and that Zeppo would go out with the girl I was dating. Oh, my. (laughs) <laughs> to think back to just that rusk brush off in the parking garage. And then because I took her to dinner when he was visiting, she was young and attractive and bright. And he sort of took an interest. He sort of picked up where Chico left off in terms of women. And he had recently lost his wife to Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow. Uh, so he was free, white, and 74. <laughs> She was 19, I was 20. And she and I broke up and I had a couple of photos that I wanted him to sign. So I sent them to his address in Palm Springs with a cover note saying, Linda and I, by the way, we've broken up. I know you've been around the block a few times. Do you have any advice to help me through this? And I get a phone call. Steve at Zeppo Marks, I hope I'm not bothered. No, no, how are you? Look, I got your letter, and uh, I got the pictures, and I'll sign them. God, I was good-looking back then. (laughs) And uh, I have a question for you, and uh, please be honest with me, because I don't want to step on your toes. But do you think Linda would go out with me? And I thought this is really weird. <laughs> I'm writing him to see if he has any words of consolation. And he's thinking, "Oh, she's up for grad." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I, I think she enjoyed your. You've got to kick it. Uh, let me. I'll because uh, if this is at all awkward for you, the last thing I would want to. Be, no, 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 no. It's it's uh, it's. Uh, let me find out, and then I'll let you know. So I talked to her, and she thought, like, how can I not experience this just for the sake? Of... So they went out once. Uh, he took her to dinner in San Diego and then to attend a high game in Tijuana. Oh my god! I guess that was Zeppo's standard first date, <laughs> dinner in San Diego and a high game in Tijuana. And then afterwards, when I talked to him, he said, I want you to know, Steve, I never even kissed her. She was very nice, but all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus, and she said, Zeppa was very nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, <laughs> you know, this is kind of fitting. And then after that, whenever I would see him, he would come up for parties at Groucho. He would make a point of finding someone to introduce me to, and he would say, this is Steve. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with it than I did. <laughs> so that was uh, the nature of our relationship. And then, you know, for heaven's sakes, Groucho Marx, who I came to appreciate on, on three different levels. First of all, oh my God, it's the star of Duck Soup and Night at the Opera, and you bet your life. Second, He was someone who was personal friends with people that seemed mythic to me, people that didn't exist in color and in three dimensions. Um, W.C. Fields and George Gershwin and uh, George Kaufman and Irving Thalberg, you know, these people, in addition to the fact that he was a brother to Harpo and Chico who had died in the early 60s, so I never got to meet them. So he was this, you know, one degree of separation with firsthand stories about these legendary people. And then the third level was just as a a man from 1890. That's when he was born. Wow. So he remembered the 19th century. I said, how far back do you remember? And he thought a moment and he said, I guess the Spanish-American War. 1898, he was eight years old. Um, his memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which is just, you know, if you have any appreciation of history, it's jaw drop. He talked about the night that the brothers had to go on the night that president Harding died in 1923. (laughs) And he said that the, the theater that they were playing that night had an aluminum roof and it was raining and all you could hear the whole night, were the raindrops hitting the aluminum roof because nobody was in the mood to laugh that night. You know, oh, just yeah. this random moment, lost for all time, but preserved in his mind. So yeah, I mean, he was a, a literal Victorian, although he was American. I mean, he, you know, Victoria was on the throne for 11 more years when he was born. So I just drank it in and it, it, that's what pulled me into that world beyond, you know, even after he was gone, I knew I didn't want it to end. Oh gosh. So, yeah.
1: it, Given the fact that he has lived through so much change, he, do you get the sense that it influenced him? I mean, like going from the Spanish American war, World War One, World War II, introduction of, of planes. Uh, of a lot of societal upheaval, you know, in the sixties, uh, world war two. I mean, do you get a sense of, of how that influenced him or d- didn't influence him? He just felt like, you know, he was a man apart from that. And he concentrated on his, um,
0: well, he w- in some ways he was a remarkably modern man. I mean, he had very old fashioned ideas about women, which is too bad. You know, he had friends that had long term happy marriages. His friend, writer Arthur Sheikman, had been married to Gloria Stewart, who most of your viewer listeners would know as the old lady in Titanic, but she was also mm. the female lead in The Invisible Man with Claude Rains and wow. the old house with Karloff and uh, Gold Diggers of 1935, Lesby Berkeley. And she was beautiful, but she was also brilliant because she came to lunch a few times. And Harpo's wife, Susan, uh, had been the female lead in Million Dollar Legs with W.C. Field. Uh, she played Angela. And she was beautiful, but had a great personality. Um, his friend, Nunnally Johnson, who was one of the main creative forces at 20th Century Fox in the 30s and 40s, about the scripts of Grapes of Wrath. Anyway, he was married to Doris Bowden, who had been an actress who was in Grapes of Wrath, played the pregnant Rose of Sharon And she, too, was a beauty with brains. But Groucho seemed to just be attracted to young women that he just didn't see as equals. He said to an interviewer once, I was married three times and divorced three times. None of my wives had anything upstairs except another man from time to time. Uh, So I I thought it was a shame because there were long term happy marriages, but he, he didn't really have them. So he did have, but for certain women, like he had great respect for Eleanor Roosevelt, he had great respect for Betty Ford because of her honesty he didn't have much respect for Gerald Ford that he said i think he said something like i think he got hit in the head with a football too many times <laughs> when he was in college but betty ford he he was a lifelong democrat he had progressive leanings so in a lot of ways you know and and he it's like he was the one that introduced his peers to dick cabot and woody allen when they were doing stand up you know cuz his his group would say, nobody's funny anymore. I turn on the Ed Sullivan show, and these guys on, and Groucher would say, you know, there's a couple that I think are worth your while. And then, so he could stay remarkably current, but historically, I mean, various historic things took their toll, like the stock market crash, which we read about or study, but he lived through it. He had gone through the rough and tumble world of vaudeville that catch catch can or can't world of just being on trains to all these towns and sometimes they thought you were funny and sometimes they didn't. And finally, the brothers became big Broadway stars in the early 20s and then with coconuts and animal crackers on Broadway. And it was like, all of a sudden, Groucho bought a home in Great Neck, Long Island, where all of the wealthy writers and Broadway stars had homes. All the brothers bought limousines it was like they made it. And then it oh, just yeah. burst in October of 29. And they, you know, I think he looked, said he lost a quarter of a million dollars. I don't know what that is in 2021 dollars. It'd be, still be a lot now, but you can imagine in 1929, and he had to start all over again. Wow. So and he did fine. I mean, with the Hollywood films and especially with You Bet Your Life, which was probably his happiest career time because he was making the most money and really had to go in just once a week to be himself and talk to people. Didn't ask, you know, he didn't have to sit in a makeup chair at five in the morning, something like that. So he was impacted by historical events and had a remarkable perspective on it. But you know, most of his peers had also experienced these things. So it didn't, he wasn't out, it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to be able to talk about the depression or World War II World War I, which is what caused Gummo to leave the act. He was drafted. He was the straight man. And 17-year-old Zeppo, Gummo was Gummo was drafted by the army and Zeppo was drafted by the Marx Brothers to join (laughs) the act because they needed to be the four Marx Brothers. Zeppo was never that happy being a performer. He had a great personality, a great sense of humor, and really lit up a room when he walked in. He doesn't get the credit he does because he seems so wooden in films because his three older brothers got the lion's share of character roles, and he was left with the leftovers. So he was never that happy. And when he left the act after duck soup in 33, he started an agency business that didn't very well. Um, he represented such forgotten bit players as Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and Lana Turner and Lucille ball. Wow. So he did, he, he was much happier not being in front of the camera. Yeah, you, I think you asked a question somewhere in there. I hope I did something close to your compatriot there. He's yeah, off, who I'm not looking at. Uh,
1: well, but I. I uh, yeah, I. I. Th- I, th- I think you did. I think um, along with that, one of the things that I was, had been kind of tickling in my mind is when you're talking, when you're around these groups of um, of Marx's uh, acquaintances and friends. Do you get? Did you at that point, because they later in their career. Probably passed many of them past their prime. Did you get a, a a spark from them in terms of either charisma or humor or insight, or did they were they their conversations more mundane? Was there something? Well, that-
0: they ran the gamut, as they say. Uh, they ran the gamut. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, and Groucho was also a serious person at heart. You know, his it, it isn't for nothing that his stage name was Groucho. And not Sweeto or Warmo, <laughs> um, and their mother Minnie. Her nickname for Groucho when they were kids was Der Dunkel, which means the dark one. Mm-hmm. That he he tended to be moody and withdrawn, and you know did a lot of reading off by himself, that sort of thing. So he had you know strong opinions about politics and business and, and things like that. But also what I found out when I went to work for him was that the mechanism that made him Groucher was still there, which was really reassuring after uh, seeing him at the Dorothy Chandler and thinking, oh, so much of him is gone. What I realized working there every day around him for hours was how much was still there, and it was always wonderful. He, he always kept up with what was happening in the Hollywood trade papers, I would bring him the mail. And he would come to the lunch table. One day he said, Wonderful mail you brought me, nothing but requests for money. And I said, But you got a variety, didn't you? And he said, Yes, a variety of requests for money. Which it's, I mean, he phrased that exactly as he would have in the 20s or 30s. He got a, a tin of candied almonds for Christmas one year from Fred Allen's widow. And as he was walking past the room I used as my office there, he said, by the way, send her one of my Christmas cards." And I said, don't you want to say anything uh, personal? He said, well, tell her thanks for the nuts. Hope you're the same. <laughs> So I mean that that it's like he couldn't not twist a line and hand it back to you.
2: It sounded like he could uh, actually do it in a in a darker way too. When that, that line about his wife or his wives, you know, somebody upstairs—that's that's a little dark.
0: Yeah, um, there
1: was yeah, there was darkness to his to stuff too. Did did that? Um, yeah. Did that finish? Did that influence your humor? Did it like? Being around somebody like that for years and being I somebody it, of the, I, a, an idol, did you do you find that when you think about it, go, yeah, some of the th- the rhythms and the things that I write, I maybe not mirror, but you you know, kind of there's in, there's you can see the influence or feel the influence. I
0: think it was a combination of my natural attraction to wordplay and humor and puns and fun with words and I think that's what drew me to Groucho of well certainly to the Marx Brothers of all the comedy teams and of Groucho of the four Marx Brothers was that wonderful way with words in addition to the fact that he could say and do things that you wish you could that you'd get in trouble (laughs) so I think I had that frame of mind to begin with which made us sort of kindred spirits there was one day he called me into his room and he held out a $20 bill and he said, go down to tower records and get me some, some records. You know what I like. And it meant so much to me that he knew that I appreciated the stuff he did and that I wasn't just some tennis shoe wearing hot smoking hippie freak that had no idea, you know, he appreciated the fact that I knew and got his world. So it was it sort of, a, it, it pinged back and forth. I was that way to begin with. Then discovering the Marx Brothers sharpened my sense of wordplay. And then working around him and reading more. And, I mean, he had so many great books signed to him by Robert Bensley and George Kaufman and stuff. He said, wow. you can borrow any of my books. Just make sure you return them. So I would take them home and read them. And so I know that that, you know, I'll hear myself saying, saying something that was either very Groucho-like or very Steve Allen, who was also had great fun with words and silliness, which is unfortunately underrated, just being silly or saying something silly. So it wasn't like I was dull and had no sense of humor and then caught Groucho's virus. <laughs> um, nor was it like my humor was fully formed as Athena from the brow of Zeus. Um, it it was added to and sharpened uh, by that whole experience and by the people. And and they and they did still have it even if they were retired or weren't doing much there was something really enriching. And, and Groucho preferred the company of writers. Even when he was at MGM in the 30s, he didn't want to sit with Clark Gable and, and Joan Crawford and, and Gene Harlow. He wanted to sit with the guys, like you'd meet at a deli and talk about politics and showbiz and who's sleeping with who and topping each other. That to him was stimulating. He thought that actors were fairly vacuous. <laughs> And uh, it just didn't interest him that much. He wasn't starstruck, you know, and since he was one himself, but he much preferred, you know. It's like that. The others would think, "Can you believe Groucho would sit in the other room at the writer's table when he could be sitting at this night's nice table?" But to him, that would have been the come down was having to put up with. Tell me what you think of my greatest performance.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's some that's interesting because we've talked to different uh, actors slash comedians and I think almost without it fail, all the good ones have said when we've asked them uh, anything along those lines, I'd rather talk to the directors, I'd rather talk to the writers. I'd rather talk actors. to
2: the crew a lot yeah. of times too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Usually yeah. you don't get
2: ego Steve, I was wondering if um and this may never have come up, but uh love the Stooges, but I know the comedy of the Stooges is really different than the comedy of the Marx brothers. Mm-hmm. Did Groucho ever talk about that? Did you know any of them their meetings?
0: Like did they ever meet do ever meet Mo or any of those guys? It it never came up and I never asked him. I mean, certainly I spent a lot of time asking him stuff I'd wondered about. I mean, it was such a great opportunity. Or as things arose, or it's like one of the books that I helped put together when I was working for him was a picture book called The Groucho File, P H I L E. That's like a pictorial history of his life. And we used a lot of the photos he accumulated over the years, which is part of my job as his archivist to put them in order. And he had a story for every photograph. Uh, You know, it was either some personal thing or what his opinion of their talent or some interesting thing that he did with them or about their lives or something. So you got that personal insight into a full array of people. You know, you're uh, I wanted
2: to mention too that you uh so I I was looking on uh Steve Soliard, I almost Stollier. missed Stolyer. You knew I'd do it, Steve. You, you knew I would.
0: Did. You almost got it right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but uh looked at steve and those pictures are amazing that you have um but I wanted to say call back to what you talked about earlier. There is a freneticism to some of those, if that is a word, a freneticism to some of those pictures. They all look, I mean, you know, you have crowds of people and things going on. I One sp- particular p- picture that I really wanted to know the story was Groucho's lying in bed. There's a woman with him and then uh. people are standing around and they all have kind of <laughs> weird looks on their face like they're watching what's going on.
0: In 1930, Groucho wrote a book called Beds, which was just humorous essays about the bed. And it had different staged photos in it of Groucho in bed, including one where he's in bed with a young woman and there's different businessmen standing around the bed, glaring at him or something. So, and because it had become, it it only had one printing in 1930 and was printed on really cheap paper. And the covers were like, saltines. It seemed like you could just break the book if you just squished it. Uh, So in 76, Groucho's biographer, Hector Arce, uh, talked to Groucho and they decided to do a reissue for all the people that wanted to read it but didn't want to pay $100. They would recreate some of the photos as well as having other photos of him in bed with celebrities. So there's pictures of him in bed with Carol O'Connor and Sally Struthers and Burt Reynolds, and Valerie Perrine, and uh, Lynn Redgrick. Anyway, and additionally, they recreated the picture of him in bed with a young blonde with a bunch of people around. But in that case, the young blonde was his his cook, Robin, who was really just a lovely person, literally and figuratively. And then standing around were uh, his nurse, his publicity agent, um, Hector, R.C., uh, Aaron Fleming, and then me with, coincidentally, my eyebrow raised, since I called my book Raised Eyebrows, but that wasn't why. And it was supposed to go into the book, but Hector didn't like it. Hector thought he looked too overweight, so he asked the publisher to pull that one, which frustrated me because I thought, oh, boy, my picture with Groucho is going to be in this book. And it wasn't. As it turned out, it was in the Groucho file because there was a picture from when Groucho came to UCLA during our animal Crackers campaign. And there was a picture of Aaron and Groucho and me surrounded by all of these students. But it was. I was really annoyed that Hector decided, no, let's not use that picture. But I certainly made a point of asking the photographer, Ellen Berman, for a copy, which I now cherish and which is the one to which you referred. Oh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it.
2: <laughs> that's a great picture. And, uh, anybody that, uh, would like to know about, uh, Steve Stoller, uh, go to stevestoller.com. It's pretty neat. It's a pretty cool site. I really enjoyed it. Well, um, here's my cheap plug.
0: Sure. My, my book raised eyebrows, my years inside Groucho's house is available in, in three floor mat uh, formats. uh, paperback, audio book with me reading it and doing all the voices, big surprise Uh, and Kindle. And you can find that on Amazon, or if you want to get a copy signed personalized to you, you can order it from my website, stevestrolier.com and I'd be happy to sign it and send it off. So it's uh, hard to avoid some form of the book that I wrote, (laughs) which also I'm thrilled to say is being very actively developed as a motion picture. It's not going to be Groucho's story. It's it's any more than Ed Wood was Bela Lugosi's story. It's a story of an aging legend in his twilight years, and this ambitious, volatile woman, and then this kid who was just a fan dropped into this atmosphere. Like with giant forceps into a petri dish, and uh, that's gonna—it's gonna be a movie, and it's gonna be surreal to see someone playing me at 19 with my mutton chops <laughs> and, and mustache and hair, and
1: you know, Let's talk
0: about the casting at this point.
1: But
2: I, I know that this isn't happening. But I thought it was very interesting that Rob Zombie was uh, slated to direct this for quite some time. He was
0: for- For quite a while. Yes, I was flattered. Someone uh, some years back said, did you read the latest issue of, now I can't remember what it was called, some magazine. And I said, what is that? He said, it's a British heavy metal magazine. I said, oh, I have a lifetime subscription. (laughs) And he said, well, the reason I brought it up is because there's an interview with Rob Zombie in it. And I knew about, you know, House of a Thousand Corpses and and in it, he, you know, they asked him, what's your favorite this, favorite that, and they asked him what his favorite book was, and his answer was, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. It was written by this kid that was just a fan, Steve Stolyer, and he went to work for him as, the, as his secretary, and it's wild and dark, and, weird. and I thought, I'm so flattered all the hell. <laughs> And so I checked on Facebook. I said, is there anyone that has any connection to him? I just to say, hey, heard about it and thank you. And there was someone who knew someone that was a guitarist at one time. So I ended up getting an email from Rob that said, hey, heard you were looking for me. Hit me up. and, And so we started emailing and he said, have you ever thought about doing this as a movie? Because it's just the kind of thing I'm looking for to get away from horror. And I had uh, been trying to get it off the ground for quite a while and ran into all sorts of resistance. And I said, well, and as a matter of fact, I was just about to agree to have an option by a producer who was going to give me extremely little money, but it was more money than anyone else was. But I hadn't agreed to it nor signed anything. And then Rob said, could I read it? And I said, sure. So I emailed him the script. And he said, this will take me a few days. But then that afternoon emailed me and said, this is fucking great. This could make a fucking great
1: movie.
0: (laughs) Um, I could get this thing financed. What do we do now? And it was like, Oh my, I guess I need to find an attorney uh, or someone to, and you know, it, it was interesting because we're so dissimilar. I mean, you know, he looks like Manson with head to toe tattoos and, you know, it does screaming songs and explosions and horror movies with but he loved he loves old movies. He was a huge Groucho fan and remains one. And we we did manage to get the football many, many yards closer to the goal line before there was the realization that, unfortunately, he was typecast for his horror stuff. Uh, I even wrote a piece for The Hollywood Reporter all about all of the mainstream directors that started out in horror. The Corman people, I mentioned... um, um, Well, Corman, you hit
2: about 75% of them right there with Corman. Yeah.
0: Everybody's worked I said Robert Wise started out directing... Curse of the Cat People and, and wound up with West Side Story and Sound of Music. So wow. you know, and, and, of course, all of my March Brothers friends, fan acquaintances, all thought that I had sold my, my cow for worthless beans. <laughs> Why would you trust the guy? And it's like, thanks for giving me credit for not just leaping at this. And we really were kindred spirits that were all, literally on the same page plus we love talking about b Lugosi films and, and emails photos on the set of different vintage horror movies and stuff oh, and we're still pals which is great there's no hard feeling at all but the, the producers who had optioned it decided they want to they still really want to make it but they felt that they could it was as far as they could go and just kept running into this resistance on financing and casting and so now we have someone else I can't talk about yet, but it's going very smoothly. And well, just
2: between us, Steve, just <laughs> just between us.
0: <laughs> oh, nobody else is listening. <laughs> That's right. All and me, know,
2: just else us. Else Wait, <laughs> I don't darn know how it! How many people watch your show? I'm sorry, Norbert's still here. I'm sorry,
0: we can't. Oh, and we got man. the
1: producer, so <laughs> I don't know, probably. Won't you
0: please say hello, David <laughs> hey, O'Shelnick, <those spells>, <laughs> That <laughs> great Irish producer, David <laughs> hey, O'Shelnick. <those spells>, <laughs>
1: So, awesome. Steve, I've got one final question for you. You've done a lot of different things. I see that you've you, you know, have written comedy. You've uh, wor- worked on at least a uh, retelling of, of history, at least from producing uh, documentaries that I've seen, a uh-huh. voiceover work. Is there one that you have is more fun for you or you're more passionate about than the others or, or is –
0: You know, I enjoy the voice work more partly because I'm lazy and it doesn't require, I mean, I I can go in, I'm good at a cold reading. I don't need to, you know, you don't need to memorize the lines when you're reading them into a microphone and you don't have to look your best and and, uh, uh, you don't have to face the blank page. Dick Cabot told me that Fred Allen had a sign in his office that said, Where were you when the page was blank? Because all the people that would have, you know, I was looking at what you wrote, and I think that beginning, we, we can tighten that up a little And it's like, Where were you when, you know, I, I created awesome. this from nothing. Right. And it's so easy for. And and dropping another name, I got to I corresponded with and got to have dinner with the great theatrical caricaturist Al Hirschfeld, who he's the one that hid Nina's in his drawings, and he did he recognized his stuff instantly. All sorts of spiral eyes and anyway, he was also a really clever writer because he wrote a book called Show Business Is No Business, and I asked him why he didn't do more writing since he was so good at it and he said when you do a drawing no one ever says how about if you put a tree over here or how about if you make his feet bigger they just you do the drawing and it's done when you write something it's like well this isn't as funny and this needs to be shorter and I'm this was confusing so he liked to have the control over it so yeah I would like to be doing more voice work it's a very tight-knit community and I haven't done much lately, but that, that to me, you know, it is great to come up with a joke that you're really happy with, but um, it's also enjoyable and gratifying to be able to make noises into a microphone that people enjoy hearing. So I guess that, that would be my answer. Well, and
2: and I want to point people towards an album that Stephen, Steve put out called Undeleted Scenes, which is him just having fun with voice. It was on Amazon. Am I, did I tell you? You don't, have you seen it? It's great. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Yes, I thought they were actually, yes, that was something that the guy that published uh, Ben Omart, who owns Bear Manor Media, which which did the paperback of my book, um, had written some comedy material. And he wanted me to record them. Uh, so I didn't write any of it. Uh, I just oh. recorded it and sent it to him. And uh, for him to put out, he gave me some money. And like I'm a whore, <laughs> you pay me money and I'll bark into the mic or whatever.
2: Money, eh? That sounds <laughs> yeah. good. I listened to those, they're a lot of fun. So oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, I'll
0: tell Ben you said so. <laughs>
2: We've really just scratched the surface with you, Steve. It's been great well, talking to you tonight.
0: You can have me back sometime, but I have to feed my cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Well, I just have one more uh, question real quick. You worked with Groucho for a while. What was the main takeaway from working with Groucho?
0: I'll tell you one of the things that impressed me the most that has stayed with me. I mean, I can't pick like the funniest thing he said because it was it's picking snowflakes out of a blizzard. But one of the things that impressed me the most and that I try to do whenever possible is, unlike a lot of comedians, Groucho always tried to credit with whoever came up with a funny line instead of just stealing it and getting the laugh. He would say, you know, Robert Benchley had a funny line that uh, I'm in excellent health except for an occasional heart attack. Or Woody Allen had a great line. I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be that when it happens. Right. That's a brilliant line. So that way he would get the laugh, but he would be crediting that person. And I've always tried to do that. And if I write something funny on Facebook and then someone else just duplicates it, I get really pissed and they think that I'm over. It's like, what's the big deal? And it's like, you don't understand. I crafted that pun. Out of two things that didn't seem like there was any nexus, and and you just appropriated it. So I, you know, and so on Facebook, I'll say my friend Mark Evanier said this funny thing the other day, and that's one of the things that stayed with me. That someone, that that I thought was really classy, and that you could you can afford to credit the person and still get the laugh. I did. Here's I'll try to do this briefly. Um, I was actually a guest on a Dick Cabot show, and the other guests were Pat McCormick, David Lloyd, who wrote "Chuckles Bites the Dust" episode of Mary Tyler Moore, and Larry Gelbart, who was a longtime comedy writer, MASH, Tootsie, and McCormick. McCormick's one of those you know, larger than life, literally and figuratively. About whom many people have stories that often can't be told in mixed (laughs) company. So I was there as sort of the young writer there to hear their advice. and, and, And they were all telling Pat McCormick stories. And I thought, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to do this. And I said, I have a Pat McCormick story, and I have only just met Mr. McCormick. And they looked, what? And I said, I have a friend named E. Jack. Kaplan, who's a writer, and Pat nodded, and I said, he and Pat were driving past the Braille Institute on Cahuenga, and I see Cabot put his head in his hand like, oh, God, don't, don't, yeah, <clears throat> and all of the lights at the Braille Institute were out, and McCormick said to Jack, oh, they must be working late tonight. Now, I consider that one of the most brilliant ad libs I have ever heard. And when I told it, and there was a studio audience, it got a thunderclap of laughter. But what was great was I was saying, This guy said that. But because I told it right, I could bask in the knowledge and the warmth of the laughter and applause. And just as that segment was dissolving into a commercial, You could hear David Lloyd, who hadn't said much of anything, say, they must be working late tonight. That's (laughs) wonderful. So I try to give credit instead of just swiping a line. Anyway, this was grand of you fellows to do this. And I hope that your viewers and listeners find my ramblings of interest.
2: Yeah, well we have uh com, man go check it out. It's been a it's been a blast Steve, and I really Thanks. really appreciate you coming on and talking to us tonight.
1: Thanks for your time, Steve. My
0: pleasure. Hey, have a good I'll one. See I'll see you in CyberSpace. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see All right. you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative.
2: Hey, hey. you're too late. Catch your eyes somewhere.